You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Andrew B and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Today's episode is even more special as we are also joined by returning guest Tim Pickering for a good old-fashioned debate on some of the most important changes that we are seeing in the CTA industry relating to how people access these strategies. Andrew and Tim, it's great to have you both back on the podcast this week. Tell me what's going on where you are today, Andrew. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. Um, yeah, so look, I mean, I think <laughs> from a macro perspective, I think what's been taking a lot of time and energy is just the exhausting nature of U.S. politics and what is you know going to happen over the course of the next couple of years? It seems like we were in sort of a little bit of a respite last year, uh, when uh, you know it was more about the Fed and in- in- inflation. What was happening? I think a lot of attention is turning back to politics, and it's just kind of a dreary and depressing presidential process that we're beginning. And I think what you saw with the debt ceiling, which again it's these external events, which just kind of keeps everybody um, uh, waiting in abeyance while you know it feels like. You have two clown cars driving toward each other playing a game of chicken. Um, it's just, uh, you know, I, ho- I hope we just have a more interesting and productive uh, macro environment over the next few months. Absolutely. And I was even thinking of just about what's going on in New York, where you are today, and you're laying out this whole macro picture for me, which I wanted to ask you anyway. So I appreciate that, Andrew. Tim, Calgary, what's going on? Anything exciting? Uh, yeah, we're a Calgary-based manager, which is uh, a little bit of an outlier, obviously. That's the uh, the focus of the energy business in in Canada, and and arguably the largest oil reserve in the world is is uh, in northern Alberta. Um, so it is an energy-focused town. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time for sure. We're seeing some weakness in energies, uh, which we've been seeing for I guess quite some time. As far as politics go, generally don't pay all that much attention, other for other than for entertainment value. Uh, we don't do anything with it from a um, an investment perspective, that's for sure. But it is interesting times. I think it's uh, it's probably pretty unlikely that we go back to uh, a world of quantitative easing, zero rates, no inflation, no vol anytime soon. So that makes it. Uh, um, a more what I call normal time to be uh, a CTA or a co-op manager, somebody looking to capture trends in the marketplace. So these are interesting times for what we do for sure, especially from a commodity perspective. Yeah, and 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 actually, it's it's interesting what you say there, Tim, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about the last ten years as being the anomaly, but I truly believe it is. And so what we're back now is in an environment where these kind of strategies become even more important for people who want some kind of true diversification in their portfolios. So I, uh, I'm i truly excited about uh, our conversation today. It's going to be a debate where there's going to be some strong views, strong opinions, strong disagreement, I, I feel. Um, but nevertheless, it's a really important debate because it goes to the heart of how should people think about accessing or getting access to these type of returns that we all uh, love and hold dear to our hearts? Before we go into 
all of that. Since we are recording on the last day of May, let me just say from a trend following update point of view, um, that, uh, you know, May has actually been uh, pretty good uh, so far, as far as I can tell. You know, although there's been a few surprises towards the end in some of the markets. But, you know, in terms of opportunities, the interesting thing about this month is that some of the best performing markets and sectors has been things like meats and base metals and some specific equity markets like Japanese equities and long gills in terms of fixed income. And of course, also uh, accompanied by some energies and trends in in grain. So, an interesting month uh, again, showcasing I think the the strength of what we do, and more importantly, the non correlation to equities and bonds, uh, as we all love. Anyways, let's dive into it. Um, but actually, before we do that, let me just throw in some numbers. My own trend barometer finishes the month around 43, so still stuck in neutral zone, reflecting somewhat inconsistent opportunity sets for this year so far. Uh, but in terms of the indices we track, uh, the B Top 50 index, uh, as of close of business last night, up 1.33% uh, for the month, down about 1% for the year. The SOCGEN CTA index up 2.76% for the month, uh, down 60 basis points for the year. Trend index up 3.76% for the month, down about a percent for the year. And the short-term traders index, I have to say, struggling a bit this year, down 73 basis points and down 2.9% this year. This in contrast to equities being down slightly as of close of business last night, 36 basis points for MSCI World, still up 8.5%. Bonds came off but have recovered the last couple of days, but still about uh, 90 basis points down for the month. And the S&P is up just shy of 1% as of last night, up 9.5% for the year. Anyways, now you've each kind of given me a few topics that I could bring up and I will try to add maybe a, a few um, comments along the way uh, or follow-up questions. And then actually we have a listener, Oliver, who wrote in with a couple of topics that actually I think is very relevant for this conversation. So I'm going to try and throw them in as well. Now, before we start really getting into the meat of all of this, I'd like maybe to start with you, Tim, because if I'm not wrong in my memory, you guys launched perhaps the first or one of the first CTA strategies within an ETF. And clearly, that's really a big part of our debate today. So I'm curious in terms of why you did it uh, and kind of some of the experience uh, from those early days. Um, but then we'll get into the real topics. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so we are the first CTA ever to launch an ETF. Uh, it was back in 2008. We started with something very simple. Um, it was an exposure, beta exposure to natural gas, uh, Canadian natural gas, what's called EcoGas, which is one of the largest gas supplies to the U.S. And um, why did we do that? Um, we had launched Auspice, started Auspice in, uh, I left Shell in 05. Uh, first fund in late 06 and here a couple of years later we were launching this beta natural gas ETF. What we were trying to learn about is the delivery mechanism. Um, we recognize that as a quantitative systematic rules-based manager um, that really was akin to an index. 
Um, and could we find ways to get products like commodities and CTA into a format that we thought was the where the puck was going, and that is an ETF. So learn about indexing, learn about ETFs, do it with a very uh, esteemed partner. It was Claymore. Uh, Claymore now, was now uh, then gobbled up by, by BlackRock. But um, we launched it with Claymore. They had a great distribution team, and, and we learned a lot. Um, so that was kind of the first thing was the beta product. The next thing we did was was more CTA like, and that was we launched a a trend following long flat uh, commodity product uh, linked to our Auspice Broad Commodity Index. There's a couple indices or a couple ETFs now in the world linked to that, both in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, trend following volatility based position sizing term structure, all that fun CTA stuff that's from our world. Um, and again, we were trying to to break open that that retail space and really give access to retail investors to something that otherwise was a little bit opaque, definitely hard to get their hands on. Um, being in Canada, uh, a very commodity focused uh, nation, you know, everybody will tell you they have commodity exposure and what they really mean is resource equity or debt. Um, and that isn't commodity exposure. So we're always we're always uh, looking for ways to enable the investor, whether it's retail or institutional, to have access to products. So that was our first foray into it. We learned a lot. Uh, you know, I'll preface this by saying uh, we really believe in the ETF product line uh, as a delivery mechanism. And again, these are just delivery mechanisms, very pro ETFs, and even pro ETFs in the CTA and commodity space. Um, you know, it, it accounts for uh, more than half of our almost billion in assets. So we really believe in that space uh, in general. And obviously, you know, the product that um, Andrew and team brought out, uh, you know, piques our interest in, in various ways just because of, you know, it's a CTA uh, type of product and, and, and we know this space. So uh, we applaud the, uh, definitely applaud the innovation and, and the pioneering aspects. That's kind of what gets us up in the morning here at Auspice. Absolutely. Now, um, so the first topic uh, really comes uh, from Andrew. And Andrew um, raised the question, what is a managed futures index? And why should anyone care about whether something is uh, an index or not? So I wonder if you want to throw a little bit of thoughts to that, Tim, and then uh, Andrew, you can comment from your point of view because I know you wrote about this a few years back. Um, but Tim, how, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, so if if you go back, and I mean, I'm going to go way back to 20, 2008, 2010, uh, we made the decision as a CTA to take our strategy and actually publish indexes uh, linked to those strategies. So um, we took a single strategy, it's a carve out from our flagship, took that IP to the NYSE, to an index provider, and, and they actually published that index as a third party. Why did we do that? Um, and the same was with natural gas. We needed to create a benchmark index for that ETF, um, one that the strategy had uh, a goal of tracking um, instead of us tracking or comparing to something off the shelf. Um, why don't we create our own strategy and publish that? And that is the strategy. And then, and then if there's a deviation in our strategy uh, or in our performance from theoretic, uh, i.e. the index, the investor can see that. And that provided the investor some comfort, especially way, way back when we were launching 
uh, ETFs in a very, you know, again, opaque area, commodity and CTA, you know, it was really new at the time. And, and it wasn't hard to do, right? Because we, we have rules-based CTA strategies, putting them in an index format uh, is pretty easy to do. As opposed to saying, look, what we want to do is, is launch a product. Um, in, in the case of commodity, our first product was, could we beat the GSCI or the, B, or the BCOM? That was our goal. Um, and we said, yeah, we can. So the benchmark could be BCOM or GSCI, and we can use trend following and term structure and, and, and volatility-based position sizing to do that. Or we can publish our own strategy as the benchmark index. And that's the path we chose that, that created some comfort for the investor. And, uh, you know, that's just the path that made sense for us at the time. So we do believe in, in the space where, and I, I know Andrew has some specific thoughts on this, of, of taking a strategy, one that we believe is robust, that can be replicated as a strategy, especially for the market makers, and, and putting that out as an ETF product, as opposed to replication. And, and I'm not saying replication is bad, and we can go down that path here shortly, but that's just the path we chose at the time, was to take our strategy. We had a lot of track record. Uh, you know, We've been around 17 plus years, a lot of track record in this. And, and that's what we'll use as the basis for the strategy. Okay. Now, Andrew, I have, I have to say I have not read your article uh, that you wrote, um, but I, I think it's a few years back in 2015. Um, what did you write about this topic? Okay. So, so I, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by this intersection. So this, one of the most fascinating things from an industry structure perspective is this debate between active and passive, right? And, and a lot of things in the asset management world have kind of big words attached to them and people kind of take it. So they look at the S&P 500 and they say, oh my God, it's that's passive. Um, but but the index changes over time. You know, S&P decides to to change it. Now they make relatively minor changes over a period of time. Um, and at the under, other end of the spectrum, you've got a stock picker who is basically trying to beat the S&P 500 by, you know, 100 basis points a year net of fees. And he's deciding which ones of those 500 stocks he wants to own and put it together and try to do better. Um, but, but they're really not all that different as you, and so the, what I wrote about, and I think what, what there, there was a whole wave of products that were launched in the mid two thousands, uh, that were, um, that, that were labeled as index products and, and they were systematic in nature. It was called the alternative risk premium space. And, and they sounded unbelievable on paper. Right? Why would I ever invest in a CTA when I can simply build my own trend-following model? And building trend-following models requires a great deal of experience, et cetera, but, but you can get a lot of the way there by establishing certain rules and parameters. And, and this whole business is based upon, we all learn from each other in different ways. Right? And so somebody figures out that a certain window length or a vol adjustment or something is better, over time other people are going to adopt it. But what we found is when we looked at it, so we loved the idea in theory. Then we looked at the space and what we found, and we said, all right, let's build, let's build our own, right? And we started actually with Merger Arb, right? And we said, let's build our own Merger Arb model. And, and the argument that Cliff Asnes and other people were making was, you know, Merger Arb guys generate high-risk adjusted returns. They're really not that smart. What they're really doing is harvesting a risk premium because most investors hate Merger Arb deals and sell out too soon. And so there's this big, you know, they're just, a million guys are leaving pennies on the on, on the ground, and we'll just sweep them up. And as we went through the process of trying to build it, what we realized is, my God, we have to specify like these 35 different parameters. 
do we want Japanese equities or not? What happens when a bid comes in above the offer? How do we treat that? What if it's a cash deal? What if there's some weird security? And, and when we got through all this, what we realized was that actually those indices were single manager products wrapped up as an index. Now, why would somebody do this? And what I wrote about was basically the power of it from a marketing perspective was that people were creating indices that were essentially systematized active management products and then walking out with a 30-year track record. Because, because the way regulatory rules worked, and they still work that way, is that you can publish an index as your hypothetical performance, but you can't show a track record even if you're doing exactly the same thing for the past 25 years, but it just wasn't in XYZ vehicle. Right? So in, in the case of DBMF, we started it in 2016, identical underlying strategy, rolled it into an ETF in 2019. For the vast majority of investors out there, our world starts in, in 2019. Um, and so, so the appeal of the index products was you could show somebody how you think this would have done over a long period of time without it being them having to come and ask you for it directly without sort of all... So, but what it got to was this, this, this question of if you create an index or you're using an index, that's not what the asset allocation bucket that you're, that you're aiming for does, then have you introduced a new risk in your model? And so as it relates to the managed future space, what we basically concluded at the time, and I, I think the products have gotten a lot better, and, 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 and Tim's, your, yours, yours may be, be, be far better than what we looked at, was that if, you, if everybody is saying they're a trend follower, and this is the index, and the indices are 30 points apart at the end of two years, that suggests that they're really single manager products. And the problem it creates you as an asset allocator is when you say index, it should be something that you can fill a bucket and know it's going gonna, it's gonna to match that bucket or come close to that bucket over the next two or three years. And, and I didn't see, we didn't see the rules-based ways, way, ways of doing that. Now, there are people I think who've done it well, but we saw issues where people hadn't. So, I, I mean, good points. I, I would say one aspect that we learned about, and, and you're not wrong in a sense about publishing an index and you can look back over time and it's theoretic and and all the rest the only correction i would make to that is when you go to sell a product you can't allude to that that historical track record you can only look at that track record um, and this has gone through regulatory i've been through it for whatever it is now decade 15 years where from that point that there was product and that index was published, then you can look at it going forward. You can't look at the back test and publish that alongside product. At least that's what we've experienced. And, and that's not only in Canada, but specifically with our, our relationship uh, with direction in the US. So, that, so that's one aspect. I think, you know, there's a lot to unpackage here. I'd say part of what I'm hearing is, is this thesis that people like indexes, and you know why? Why would they be comforted with an in index? Um, well, in in the equity and fixed income world, they're very comfortable with it. And this idea that people want index exposure in the CTA space, and I don't believe that's the case. I don't think in the CTA space that's what people want. They want these benchmark indexes of eighteen or nineteen or whoever the managers are. What I hear from clients, both retail and institutional, is they want outperformance at critical times. They do not want index. If they do, if they get index, they want it with far less risk than even what the index shows, the vol, the drawdown. 
but they want outperformance at these critical critical times. And then we can go down this you know wild door of, of crisis alpha and 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 to me all that means is can you outperform the street at these critical times when a client is really looking for negative correlation, non-correlation, uh, crisis alpha and performance. And, and that's when you don't want to be benchmark. You don't want to be index. Um, and this is where, you know, this is where the alpha debate, you know, starts to, starts to come in is, is what is that element that causes a manager to outperform, even if they are systematic, rules-based, but what is it about their strategy um, that causes them to outperform at these critical times? That's what institutional investors do. They go build portfolios of CTAs that they think are better. They're not looking for index. They're looking for better. They're looking for these elements. Yeah. Look, I, well, first of all, I think, I, think, I think there are a million different kinds of investors, right? And so I, I think I, we, we have found zero interest in general or very little interest in general for our products from institutional investors. Because they do want to pick you and five different guys, right? They want you and Niels and three other people. And, and what they do is they put together, they don't want five guys who look alike, right? They want five guys who do different things. They want, you know, they're probably not going to do Niels and Alpha Simplex and, and, and somebody else who has kind of like, you know, very similar return profiles over time. They're going to layer it with a man AHL or somebody else. They're also probably going to go toward guys that they think are institutionally credible and safe to invest in. Um, but I, but I, what I would argue is when they're putting together five or six, right? So so one step above that guy is a guy who's building a, is a consultant or somebody else who's building a long-term asset allocation portfolio. And and there's a, there's a decision that happens above that where they decide in the first place that they want a 3% allocation or 5% allocation to manage futures. And how do they make that decision? They, they, I've never seen somebody look at that and say, ah, what we need to do is, 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 is Bob. We need Bob to be a 5% allocation. They have to look at a long-term return stream, and then somebody feeds it into what are called capital markets assumptions. And they say, and, and they come up with all sorts of assumptions about the future. This is the expected returns. This is the expected um, you know, uh, correlations to risk and asset classes, et cetera, of which negative correlation or zero correlation to other assets is incredibly valuable. But, but, but so, so my whole thing was up at that level, when you're deciding to put something into an, an, an asset allocation, when you're trying, deciding to, 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 to have an asset allocation bucket to begin with, you are by definition talking about an index of that strategy. Uh, you don't say, I'm going to start with my US equity allocation at 60% and I'm going to pick this guy because he's been doing it for 10 years and he's done better than the S&P 500. You start with, I want a 60% allocation to equities and, and then decide you want a guy to beat it. You just start with an allocation to bonds and then you pick this guy because you think he can do marginally better. And so they've got to start with, I want managed futures and then they want Tim or they want Niels as, as the alpha generation relative to it. Yeah. So I, I don't disagree. And, you know, if we go back to the kind of the start of this conversation is, is, you know, in this ecosystem, and I've heard you say these same things, I want us all to do well. I think this is an important part of asset allocation. It's fantastic to see sort of a, you know, bit of a revival in that regard. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, there's obviously a lot of interests. Our assets have grown a lot. We've got a big runway here and it seems like, you know, there's positive, positive momentum, no pun intended in, in this space. Um, 
However, I think there's a responsibility and, and you alluded to it. You're not after that institutional investor or maybe they're not looking in this space. However, I think there's a responsibility in the message that we deliver in terms of, of these products. You're talking about retail investors. And, you know, again, I accidentally found myself in this space back from 2008 on um, with retail-based commodity and CTA, uh, ETFs. But there's a responsibility in, in, in how we tell this story and that we're accurate in what we're describing. And, and you just mentioned the word alpha. And, and this is a real you know, bone I have to pick. And that is this idea that, that fee reduction is the purest form of alpha. I, I wholly, wholly disagree with that. That is not alpha. And, and, and I think that perpetuating that story that, that you know, you're going to put out a product, whether it's replication or a single strategy, whatever, it doesn't even really matter. But that that strategy, because it's got lower fees than directly with the managers, is going to generate 4% extra you know, return over some period of time. And, and that's alpha. That's not what alpha is. And I think it starts with that. We have a responsibility in this space to the message. A lot of us have worked extremely hard, 10, 20, 30, some managers pushing 40 plus years uh, in this space. And at these times when people are looking in this space and we're given this opportunity to wave our flag, I think there's a responsibility in the message. And, and I'm cautious when I hear, um, you know, certain ways things are describing. And, and you know, that's kind of the look, I, I think you misunderstood the, the, the sentence. Then the, the 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 point is that there is a it's a strategy that generates alpha, right? There are two measures of it. There's alpha before fees and there's after alpha fees. There's alpha after fees, right? Would you invest in a strategy that generates 500 basis points a year of alpha and has 500 basis points of costs? No, right? So, so if you ask the most sophisticated hedge fund investors in the world, how, how does a guy who runs the hedge fund portfolio at a sovereign wealth fund consistently do better than almost every other investor who's out there. It's because they walk into hedge funds and they say, I can give you a billion dollars and you'll raise $2 billion just because I gave you a billion dollars. But you can charge two and 20 for everybody else. But I'm going to do it at 75 basis points and 10 over a hurdle. They always do better. So, so the you know it's look it's a, it's a simple straightforward safe. The, well, the they'll whole, always but, they'll always do better if the manager performs. There's a big if but there, and and that's fine. It's, the fees don't solve everything. That's what makes fees fees are not you know cutting fees in my opinion. And people are going to debate this, and I hope they do. Fees you know fee reduction is not a pure form of alpha. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. And when you lead with that statement to the retail public, I think that's dangerous. And, you know, frankly, I'm surprised you haven't got a tap on the shoulder because I'll tell you, you know, with, with the regulators we deal with, I, I would be scared to make that type of a statement. It's like, you know what I've done here? I've, I've launched Auspice, diversified our flagship. It's been around a long time. So now I'm going to launch an ETF. It's going to be at 95 basis points. And I put out advertisements saying this is, this is alpha. You know, that, that's a problem. Well, I, look, I've, I've written also a paper called Lies, Damn Lies, and Alpha. So it's, it's. I think you're, uh, I, I, how do you define alpha? Like, what do you, what, seriously, like, what is your clear definition of alpha? And what makes you think you can identify somebody who's going to generate alpha in advance, as opposed to having, picking somebody who has done it in the past? 
Well, look, I mean, it, it, it's a tough, this is the thing about Alpha. It's, it's somewhat unexpl- you know, inexplainable, unexplainable and, and not replicable and, and not necessarily attributable to a replicable factor. But what is it about that strategy or that manager or that approach that outperforms benchmarks, the status quo, whatever we're going to call that at these critical times, you know, that's what ends up being alpha. And whenever I talk to a manager about al- or a, a, an allocator about alpha, it surely just isn't about my fees. When I sit down with a pension, you know, some of the biggest pensions in the world, and they say, okay, let's, let's understand you guys have been around a long time. You know, you still got capacity. We're interested in what you do. You got this commodity focus. You've outperformed at these critical times. Tell us why you have that edge. What is that alpha? They're not, they're not asking me. And if I answer and say, well, you know what, um, why don't we just forget about that? Let's just talk about how you're going to carve me out on fees. And, and then I'm going to go sell that story. That's not alpha, right? They want to know what my edge is. They want to know what the strategy edge is. And, and even the most naive retail investor, mom and pop at the donut shop, get these concepts of, of edge. You know, you put a, a nice fancy term like alpha on it, but but, you know, these are the things that people start to identify with. You got to remember now your product's going out there into the world. It's being distributed. It's it's got this this momentum. It's done well at times. You know, all I'm saying is I think there's there's a concern. I have a concern um, that that we're using the right terminology and and that we're being responsible in the messaging, you know, that we say. Well, look, look, I mean, we're not I mean. The, there's a lot of complexity in the messaging. First of all, if you, I mean, if you look at what I've said, there, I, there are hedge fund strategies where I'm a full advocate of high fees. Um, I am, go read me in the FT and the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg talking about, it, you paying a thousand basis points a year to Millennium is worth every penny. They take a dollar of your capital, they leverage it into 10, they make two to 300 basis points per dollar of capital and they don't blow up. That is magic from an investment perspective. They've done a 2.4 sharp ratio for long periods of time. They deserve every penny of that. But if somebody came to you and said, I am, I will give you money at a full fee structure or I will give you a lot of money at a lower fee structure, would you deny the math that the guy who, who offers you less is gonna, is, gonna, is gonna do better over time? Absolutely not denying the, the value of fees. I mean, bear in mind where we started this conversation. I'm the first CTA in the world to launch an ETF. And, and when I launched that ETF, and, and Niles knows part of this story, you know, it, it shook things up in that, you know, here you're taking a strategy. This has been around a long time. There's these nice big brand CTAs, you know, there's the London Club and there's, you know, the Turtle Path. And, and, and I'm going to launch a 95 basis point ETF. Why are you doing that? You know, why are you going to offer this transparency and why are you going to offer this at a low cost? We felt it was the right thing to do. Is, is, is the bottom line. And, and we still feel that for a certain type of product, right? And no, it isn't, if, if there's this alpha to beta spectrum, this product for us deserves a fee and we can, gener- we can demonstrate why there's alpha. And this product's somewhere over on the spectrum and it's going to be less fee. Maybe it's not performance fee. It's just a management fee. Um, or if you're really confident in your alpha, you go straight performance fee or some combination of management fee or performance fee. Either way, right, there's the difference between alpha. And my point is that we need to be careful in what we're defining to the public as, as, as alpha and fee reduction is not it. 
can I intersect here? Um, because I think we've discussed. I mean, I think you know, we, we I, I certainly get the 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 argument for both sides, but I don't want this conversation to just be about whether <laughs> fees are alpha or not. Um, and so, but I, I want to disagree. Uh, well, I have a completely different view on 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 people selling CTA strategies at low fees and giving all our alpha away. But that's for another debate, maybe. No, I want to take this point a little bit and expand it because if you want exposure to say a CTA return stream strategy, whatever we define it. And I don't know if if when people think about it nowadays, they would say, well, just pick the you know, whatever index that is kind of the, 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 the return stream. The question is, um, what are you better off doing? Are you better off building your own rules, a proxy, and then you can call it an index, whatever you want, replicating what the big managers are doing, like what, um, Andrew is doing, picking a few single managers or investing in a fund of funds. What's kind of the, and we don't want to spend too much time on it, but kind of your, Pros and cons for each of these paths. Maybe Andrew, I can put that to you first. When we came into this space, we weren't dogmatic, right? We were just trying. We were trying to figure out. We were basically saying, we want exposure to the managed future space. What does that even mean, right? And and at the time, it was very trendy to say um, that that the underlying source of returns of managed futures are trend is trend. And what it did it is it spawned this whole wave of investment bank and other products that were basically defining trend. And they were they were all had kind of a similar objective, which is to, you know, identify breakouts, identify things that are moving, kind of rebalance your portfolio. Maybe you do vol adjustments, whatever the set of rules were around it. All we wanted to do was get efficient exposure to what we defined as the asset class. And the asset class for us was um, was not those individual funds because of the variability of it. The asset class was the guys who do it for a living. And, and that meant the SockGen CTA index. At the time, the view was, when we started looking at it, kind of trend was unfavorable. And then it wasn't until really 2020 and March of 2020 when trend did better that people started to look at trend again. But, you know, back then it was the non-trend stuff was supposed to do better. Winton was pulling out of the space or, you know, claiming that they were, were no longer trend, et cetera. So, um, so we wanted, we wanted, if we went to an institution and we said, when you guys think of managed futures, what do you mean? And the answer was the SockGen CTA index. And so, so to us, the definition of the space was the average of what the big guys do. No different than the S&P 500 is what the big stocks are doing. So the question is, how do you get access to that? Simple models work really well. Right. There's not it's not a knock on uh, the Corey Hofstein has has launched a an ETF in the U.S. that combines a factor replication with, um, you know, a sort of mechanical trading strategy with rules based strategy around it. It's it's it is a perfectly legitimate, incredible way of doing it. But when we looked at it and we said what we're really trying to do is get how do we get as close as we can to what those 20 guys are doing? and do it in the most efficient way that we possibly can. Because, again, we're building it for a portfolio in Europe. We looked at doing factor replication, and it worked the best back then. And you know, we started in doing 2015, and by the end of 2022, it had worked far better than anything else that we'd found. And we had basically been aiming for what we thought were kind of the pre-fee and pre-expense returns, and had outperformed, I think, 19 of the 20 constituents of the SockGen CT index by the end of 2022. It hasn't worked well this year. Right, it hasn't. We've we've been we've missed something in 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 the markets this year. Maybe it's the simplicity of the portfolio. Maybe it's the timing. 
but it hasn't worked disastrously well. It just hasn't worked as well as it had previously. Um, another approach is you go to Abbey. Give all your money to Abbey because Abbey is diversifying. They're, ma- they're doing the decision for you. And they have a great business model. I think they're the best in the business at doing it. You know, a third approach is to buy some sort of a trend-following, you know, index-type product or a managed futures index product. I think there you have to, you know, have a clear view on – it requires a certain level of sophistication. You've got to get under the hood on it. Um, or you buy a guy or a single fund. And, and each one of those has advantages and disadvantages. And, and I think, the, I think the, the positive thing, hopefully, when we look back at this in five years, will be that investors have a lot of really good choices. They've not had good choices in the ETF world. You know, they have, going back to this idea of index products, two of the early products that were launched were launched around ind- indices that nobody would want. But it, it, was, it was designed to kind of say, oh, we're giving you access to an index. The problem was, as an asset allocator, where do, you, where do you put that in your portfolio? How do you feel confident that that index is going to give you what, you know, what, what the SockGen CTA index would give you over time? So I think, look, I think, I think, I don't, it's, I think there are lots of different uh, great options. I mean, I wished I had had all of my money with done in the beginning of 2022 and, and had all of my money with done in the beginning of May of this year. Um, but, but I just haven't, you know, we never found out a way to figure out who was going to have those banner years. In fact, what we looked at is we'd say, who were the great guys in 2010 and what happened to them? And, and you know, who were the great guys in 2012 and what happened to them? And it just underscored how difficult it is in this space to get it right and, and, and how much unexpected risk there was when you pick the, guy, the wrong guy at the wrong time, which is what, look, the U.S. managed futures mutual fund space is $20 billion today. It was $28 billion when we started. Half of that was AQR. No one is smarter than AQR. They are unbelievable in every, in every sense in their business. But what people thought, people thought AQR could not go wrong. I think AQR has lost more in their managed futures strategies in terms of assets than I'll ever run. So, you know, there's a comment to be made there, you know, good for them. You know, there's so much to unpackage here. I mean, you know, even, you know, you're kind of going down the path of, of single manager and fund of funds and, and mentioning Abby and, you know, full kudos to Abby. They're, they're a very smart group, but, you know, in, in replication, which again, to be crystal clear, I think it's innovative. I think if it performs, it's great. I love the pioneering aspect. I love choice in the space. We need more choice in the space, especially ETF. So 100% agree. I love it. Uh, I personally prefer that, you know, the single strategy over and, you know, I'll get to a little bit why. If it delivers good or better returns with less vol drawdown risk, then I think you've really got something. And, and I think that's where I start to see red flags with the replication strategy and why we chose not to go that path. So this isn't that we just took off the shelf. Hey, you know what? We can create, carve out a, a, you know, a, a strategy and put it in an ETF format and publish an index. We looked at these things too. There's reasons that we chose not to go the replication path um, you know, for various reasons. One thing is single manager risk. I don't believe you solve single manager risk, which is real, right? Put all your money in one basket. They could be the greatest, but you know maybe there's something wrong there. Maybe there's various other things hidden. Who knows? Um, but I don't think this strategy, replication, and, and providing a replication to what the perceived positions are of the big managers solves for single manager manager risk in in any way. In fact, I think in many ways I think the risk is higher. 
because you don't have frontline risk management. And this boils down to risk management. You know, as, as a manager that's paying attention to this on a daily basis, not just trying to mimic what somebody else is doing, what we're trying to do is put, it starts with risk management. The bones, the core of a CTA is risk management. And, and that's where I see a, a red flag. You know, then you get to, to strategy. What are those red flags? Well, that, that lag on execution, that's a big deal in terms of protecting the downside. Um, there's lots of research out there. You've probably read the same papers. And, and that is, you know, on, on generating performance at these critical times or protecting the downside when you get these dislocations and being able to do that with a lag. Look what we just saw in March. March, March of this year, regional banking crisis was hardly a tail risk event, and it beat up some of these, you know, some of the big managers. It surely beat up a replication strategy, and 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 that to me is is you know again a red flag when I start to consider the risk management aspects to it. When you go replicating managers that have big portfolios and you do that with 10 or 12 things, to me, that concentration risk is, is real. Concentration is fantastic when, when you've got the right, you know, you're, you're riding it and it's a great trend. But when things dislocate, that concentration risk is an extremely big problem. The lack of, lack of diversification, the lack of commodity diversification in the case of CTAs. So, so the very best replication this year has one factor. It's the two-year treasury, right? You do, you do, a, you do a replication of the stock chain CTA index with one factor, you get a 93% correlation and you match it perfectly. It's, 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 there's so much hand-waving around diversification. I honestly don't even know how to respond to that because that is, that is patently ridiculous. Uh, I look at the returns that we've provided this year, and I can only speak to, to us you know, with intimate knowledge, you know, we're up on the year, the benchmarks are down, and our returns did not come from two years. Uh, they came from Because you're a single manager. Of course there's going to be diversion in it. Look, look, at, look at March, right? I mean, some guys, some guys de-risked early, right? We were, we were looking at the portfolios in March, and there were a few days in March where we thought everybody had de-risked because the SOCGEN CT index wasn't moving when the treasury market was going bananas. And it turns out, actually, you know, people were a little busy. They weren't reporting the SOCGEN CT index in, in the first few days after, after SVB. And so there was delayed reporting. And when it reported in, replications, unfortunately, followed everybody down just pretty much the way the index went down. But, but doesn't okay. So what you just said is a, even another factor. It's like, doesn't that alarm you? You're saying they weren't reporting in; they were busy with other things. So replication gets a little tricky. There's even a bigger lag there. I mean, there's been, there's again, it's it's pretty pretty easy to see the math and say, look, when you start looking at adjustments and you get into these lag periods, you simply aren't going to be able to adjust and and reduce risk quick enough when you've got lag. So there's a lag for a CTA that's on top of things. And there's different, you know, again, there's a big wide CTA space. There's agile, quick CTAs. There's ones that vol adjust. There's ones that don't. Jerry and I can debate that till, till no end. But then when you start to get into periods of, of this lag in terms of adjusting to something that's going on, that's a dislocation, that's a real big issue, like region, you know, this regional banking crisis, like Q1 of 2020, uh, like really the first quarter of this year, 
are you going to be able to a replicate those positions properly but really deliver on what you've promised to deliver on and that is that you're going to you know really outperform this benchmark index through all you know quote unquote all periods and the reality is that you're opening yourself up for times when you won't you simply won't be able to adjust quick enough you've already stated that and at those times of dislocation that could be disastrous right i have trouble explaining to my clients retail or institutional probably even retail more when i have months when i'm down you know more than 4 or 5% those are red flags i just completed a managed account uh, investment with a massive uh, pension. And, you know, if it gets over 5%, it sends up red flags. And, and so, you know, those type of issues start to point to the strategies. Like, does this really does what, do what it wants to do? And then I ask you this question. If you can beat the benchmark in terms of returns, you know, 4% would be great. I look back at the returns. I say, well, you know, one and a half, one and three, great. But then you're doing that with higher vol and deeper drawdowns. That's a red flag. And, and that needs to be carefully, carefully explained to investors. Look, I would, I would highly recommend you don't invest in our fund, right? We, we clearly ran over your dog. And look, it, this is, look, this is, you're, you're, I don't, you're, I don't you're take it as ran over my you're, dog. You're, I'm, I'm trying to point you're, out. You're starting, you're starting with conclusions. You're starting with conclusions and then fishing around for arguments for it. The, look, we're, we're not stupid, okay? We, we, looked at, we looked at de-risking. We looked at vol controls. We've looked at, there are no questions it can hurt you at times. But what we also found was about half the time, you hated having de-risked, right? And, 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 and there was nobody on planet Earth that we found. We want to de-risk before it goes down. Guess what? No one's figured that one out. Right? Agreed, agreed, one hundred percent. We're all trying. Right. So it's 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 a so so these are these are judgments that we make when we build it, right? We we start with a very very narrow factor set for a very specific reason. We want to have the most efficient trading and execution we can possibly have. We rebalance once a week because we're trying to keep our trading costs at ten or fifteen basis points. When we spoke to institutional allocators. Okay. No one is no one is opening up their PL to show us exactly how that we trade. But when we were talking to some of the largest CTA allocators in the world, one of the frustrations some of them had was when they had gotten in, they saw hundreds of basis points of trading costs in certain circumstances. And 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 it doesn't show up in a TER. It doesn't show up anywhere else. But but for us, it was all about, it wasn't about solving everything, everything for everybody. But what we found is when we looked at this over a very, very long period of time. The, the biggest positions were the ones that really drove performance. And you ask about diversification through, you know, again, our numbers go back longer than the ETF. But, but you know, when we, looked at, when we looked at it, we basically found that actually, you know what, sometimes having those other 50 positions that we don't have sucked. Because if you're in crude oil and crude oil moved a little bit, but you were also in natural gas and also in heating oil, and those moved a lot because the markets were less liquid, Sometimes that was worse for the real guys than it was for us. There's no perfect answer to any of this. And, and if you, you can listen to, I'm doing monthly performance reporting when we're talking about this. We talk about things we missed this year. January and February, I wished we'd had the Canadian dollar, the Mexican peso, and a few other positions. We didn't have it. And that was one of those examples when things that we don't invest in really helped. Um, I don't, we didn't see a, a, a lag issue in, even though we were worried that we were going to see a lag issue in March, we didn't see it. 
And when you look at the underlying hedge funds, we end up, we're pretty close to right the middle of, the, of those underlying hedge funds. Um, this month, we're, we're, you guys are up more than we are. And I had this correspondence with, with Niels this morning. You guys, there are a lot of markets out there that are doing really, really, really well. And so it's, it's not about coming up with, with an all-or-one solution. But I can tell you as an investor that, that having a big head start on what I think are fees and expenses on an annual basis versus what on the hedge fund side remains a, 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 an expensive area to invest in, if we're getting it 90% right most of the time, I think we're going to come out ahead most of the time with a correlation of north of 80%. We've actually been closer to 90%. And if you can do that in an ETF and people can see their positions and can understand their positions, I think there's a place in the market for it, not for the guys who want to invest with you. Listen, I, I, I'm not saying in any way there isn't a place. In fact, again, I go come back to what I started with, and that's I, I applaud the innovation. What I'm just trying to do is... is pick your brains on what I see as some of the pitfalls here. One of some of the reasons we chose not to go replication when we started down this path 15 plus years ago. And, and, and those are the things that concern me. And, and it's fantastic that there's been even more attention on the space because of your product. I applaud you for that. I'm concerned with some of these, some of these aspects. You know, there's 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 other things you've you've talked about that you know I think we've got to be careful on. Capacity is one of them, um, and and you know all strategies have capacity, and 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 the CTA space is most definitely capacity constrained. It's more capacity constrained if you're a commodity tilted manager like us for sure. But you know these are things again we have to be very transparent about when we talk to investors, especially especially retail investors. The one point I wanted to comment on that you made there was trading costs. And there's an interesting point about, you know, talking to big investors, institutional investors, and, you know, generating all these, these fees from, from uh, you know, over trading or just trading, whatever the strategy is. I have never in my you know, almost 30 years trading institutionally and running auspice for pushing 20 years ever had an, an investor of any type complain about my trading costs at times when I'm either capturing trends or reducing risk. They don't care. That has never come up, not once ever. Again, we're not talking to the same investors. I, I think this is the part you're missing is we are talking about the same investors because, again, I went down and we went at Auspice down the path of retail starting in 2008, 2010. Uh, the funds we run in, in Canada are, are public funds. As of this year, they are public funds available to the kid with a paper route, daily liquidity. They're not an ETF traded on exchange, but anybody can buy them on a discount channel. They're purchasable by any investor public full prospectus. So we are talking about the same investors and I've been on both sides of this. I have half of my assets are coming out of the retail ETF space right now. So I know this space too. What I'm pointing out is I think again, replication, this is smart. You guys are smart guys, but I see some holes in this and I think that that they are red flags. Look, what, what, what investment strategy doesn't have holes? Right. I, I looked at, look, I look, you're bang on, but this was the debate. This is the debate. It's supposed to be a friendly debate. And I'm, and I'm happy, you know, I, I'll tell you a quick story. And Niles knows this is, is, you know, one of my close friends is Jerry Parker and Jerry and I met because we have diametrically opposed views on being a CTA. 
He's been around far longer than I have. Great success. Admire him incredibly. Um, he's got a very different view on volatility based volatility position adjusting. Completely different than mine. He says what I'm doing is wrong, and I say what he's doing wrong, and and here we joust and we become great friends. And I respect his side of the equation, and and I, you know perhaps he respects mine. I don't know, um, but but we have a fun debate, and and I think you know again the idea of replication is smart. It it works really well in a lot of areas. What I'm doing is is challenging some of the issues, and and the reason I'm doing that. Andrew, is because this is how I put food on my table. This is how I've developed a long track record. This is how my company, you know, has success. And I care about the ecosystem incredibly. So here, here's, here's, the, here's the issue that I have, right? How does an allocator measure success in most circumstances? I'm talking about the guy who oversees the whole portfolio, who runs model portfolios. So we, we, we got approached back in 2009 about launching an ETF um, around our strategies. Uh, these are actually before we got into the managed future space. The, the issue that I've always had with, and, and the problem with, like, so for all, the, the, the hedge funds in ETF space is, is a disaster area. Okay, it's, and, and so the question is why? Like, why is the $7 trillion space have like no assets in hedge fund strategy ETFs? And because most products- so It's hard are, to replicate alpha. <laughs> no, that's 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 silly. That's that's like no, that's like that's awesome. like the nineteen. That's like the two thousand three. Uh, uh, you know, like second year business school definition of alpha. The, I guess um, I went to a different business school than you. The so look the the I, I looked briefly at your index product. Right, it's called a managed futures index. Okay, and and there was a period it looked like just eyeballing it where you underperformed the Sockchen CTA index by by thirty percent over a two year period of time. Right. That's not an index to me. If I'm an allocator, right? You're, it's an index because you're, you're telling people what your rules are. But you can be an active manager and you can say, these are my rules and I'm going to follow them blindly, right? And, and, and then you have to answer to, well, what if the world changes? Are you going to change it? No, I'm not going to change it because it's an index. What if your vol constraints are wrong? No, I'm not going to change it because it's, it's an index. Or I'm going to keep changing it, in which case you're an active manager and you're not an index anymore, right? So, 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 so for me as an allocator, the problem is, you're not going to hold it until 2022 when you need it if you go through a period of meaningful underperformance relative to the benchmark. You may not like the benchmark, but, but I'm talking to people, the people who like what we do, like it because they have a high confidence. Now, this year, we are underperforming the benchmark more than we ever have. That is, and, and we are having a larger drawdown than we expected, and we are talking a lot about it and what happened because it, it is different than our expectations. And, and we are being very, very clear and upfront about it. But the thing is, you know, when you look at the U.S. mutual fund space, what we're also looking at is, why did so many people get out, right? AQR had $14.3 billion in, this, in, in, in their managed futures mutual fund and around a billion by the time 2022 hit. And that didn't go all back into PIMCO and ManAHL and Dunn and everybody else who was in the space. People fled, because after 20 years, not only I mean, after five years, not only had the index done zero, but their one bet on the space had gone down 20%. And so that's the issue, right? Is how do you get people to, to hold it? We could be in for another long winter, winter, winter in the space. And so 
look, it, it's, I mean, you describe this as a debate. It doesn't feel like a debate. It feels like it's like, it's, it feels like you have a bone to pick and you want to be confrontational and you want to pick arguments. I'm not going to, I, I can tear apart things that you're saying. It's not the point. It doesn't help. You have an audience who wants to hear what you have to say. I think, I think you are hand waving around terms like alpha that I don't see people, the guys that I respect, I don't think about talk about it in those kind of mysterious, mythical terms, like it's you know somehow conjuring up fairy dust. These strategies have definable ways of getting to a particular result. Otherwise, you couldn't do it as an index. And the question is, what are the, what are the ex excess returns? What are the expected returns? What's the correlation profile of this strategy over time? And is it valuable to people? And I intend to be a, a very, very loud standard bearer that this strategy has more diversification bang for the buck if you do it with Niels, if you do it with us, if you do it with you, it should be in everybody's portfolio. Don't, don't, don't disagree. When it comes down to that biggest hurdle in this, you know, one of the biggest hurdles in the space is, you know, what is, what is that hurdle for retail investor, institutional investor, and, and it really is the same to invest in this space. And, and the biggest hurdle has always been that unless you launched at an ideal time like 2019 or early 2020 and had that performance, CTA performance hasn't exactly sold itself. We go through these periods when it is challenging to do what we do. And as you pointed out, you know, the index that we started publishing back in 2010 has definitely gone through periods of underperformance versus the benchmarks. And, and in, in, a, in a way, that's ex kind of exactly what it's designed or our strategies. That's just one of our strategies, but is designed to do. It's commodity tilted versus financial. Uh, the index doesn't have uh, equities in it. Um, it is going to at times really, really underperform the financially tilted CTAs or if the only thing really ripping is is equities or just bonds or just equities and bonds, 60-40 land. So we are going to have those periods of outperformance. But here's what matters to my business, and, and I can only speak to our business, and, and, and that is, do we perform at those critical times for our investors? Did we perform? You know, if, if that money that did stay with us up until beginning of 2020, it was a very hard period of time for all CTAs, pretty much all, I would say, you know, there's a big wide scope, but, but most anyway, the ones that stuck with us were pretty happy in 2020 because we not only performed, we outperformed in Q1, we outperformed in, in you know the rest of the year. It was it was an absolutely pivotal year. Right, but but what were you up last year in 2022? You're up like eight percent or something in your index, right? I think the index. So you, was so you, so you, so you underperformed. So pre-fee, the, these guys were up 20 points ahead of you. Yeah, last year in the year when you needed it the most like it's just i mean like it's it's 2020, 2022 so this is what i think you're getting wrong 2022 pretty much all ctas in some capacity had a good year and and our strategies were up whether we underperformed a little bit or, or you know whichever that's a bit neither here nor there because that's not what my clients are coming to me saying you know what you didn't you didn't keep up with the sock gen cta index in 2020 you were positive but you didn't quite keep up the question was how did you do in q1 of 2020 2020 how did you do in march how did you do at these dislocating times that's what they're asking right they're not asking for 
for just those la-di-da years. How did you do in 2019? Well, they know CTA struggled, right? It's not what our clients are asking. What our clients are asking is, I like this space. How do I have it for the next 10 years? We entered the space in November 2015. The winter was just beginning. It was a horrible time to enter, enter the space. The next five years, the space did zero. I mean, the stock trend CTA index did zero. You think 2019 was a horrible time to enter? If you're financially tilted CTA. 2015. 2015. Oh, 2015, yeah. No, that was, that was you know, couldn't have, couldn't we, have picked it yes. work. Right. And so, so during the next five years, fee efficiency saved us. Because if you were if you were zero or you went through big drawdowns over that period of time, you weren't around in 2020, right? And and fee last last year we were I mean, whatever I mean, you can look up you can look at the performance of the index, but basically Sockchain CTA index I mean Sockchain CTA index was up 20. In order for it to be up 20, and as far as I know, everybody who's in the index still has a 20% fee structure. Meant these guys were up about 28. That's a year when replication should outperform. Because if you're getting 90% or more of what these guys are doing before fees, but you're only charging 85 basis points, you're going to do 400 basis points, 300, 400 basis points better. Um, there are going to be periods of time when, when when it's not going to. But the question is, do you have the wind at your back? I think we do. You think we don't. You know, I, but the, the questions your clients are asking you are, it's not it's not the conversations I'm having it, with people. So, so to be clear, it, I actually disagree that it's not that I don't think you have wind at your back. I think I think you're in a CTA space that is in a very positive uh, environment for the next three, five, seven, maybe even a decade. I think the CTA space is the right place to be. And, and whether it's a single strategy, a multi-strat like our flagship, whether it's replication, I think the wind is at all of our backs, Andrew. I think this is what you're missing about what I'm saying. And I think there is room. This is one product. There's pick your other products, you know, and you've been highly critical of the other CTA products I've, I've heard. So hold on, wait, wait, what, what, what products do you think I've been critical of? Let's put that on the record. Well, I mean, I'm just, if I listen to past interviews where you talk about uh, the other products in the space, I'd I'd say you've been pretty darn critical. I mean, which one are you talking about? You called one of them absolutely a terrible product. Oh no, no, look, there, 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 look, there are some ETFs. I mean, the Wisdom Tree launched a fund in 2010, but they're they're not a CTA. So, so how are you a CTA and they're not a CTA? Oh look, look, I mean, they, 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 they this that's actually a very good example of an index product. That that use the term index. So they originally started following something called the TraderVic index. It was a single manager product, and the fund was positioned as a a one stop solution for the managed future space. And I think people who knew the space knew that if you're picking one guy's named index, you were taking single manager risk. And it's you talk about appropriateness. That's not appropriate in a retail portfolio filling an asset allocation bucket. You're saying hold on, you're single manager risk. So you're saying that's inappropriate, but you're single manager. So so is Abby. No, they're not. Right? Abby is as single manager. Absolutely, Abby is not a single manager risk. What you're hiring Abby to do as one of the most tenured fund of funds in the space is use their expertise to pick, put the right combination of CTA managers together. And, right. you know, and, and they were down, they had a 30, 37% drawdown in their flagship fund in the early 2010s when the index was down 14%. They, they, everybody has, there's a risk in every single product. We're trying to minimize it the extent that we can. I advocate for Abby's, when people ask me if you, in, in the U.S. mutual fund space, 
there, there are a handful of funds that I recommend to people if you want to invest in a mutual fund. But you're just talking about single manager risk, Andrew. And you're saying Wisdom Tree is a terrible product, single manager risk. You have single manager risk. You're, replic- you're replicating a benchmark through this, these tools or you know, managers in this space. You've got this big lag. If that's not single manager risk, I don't know what is. What we, we, we are trying to, we believe that if you look at the, t- the, the average positions of 20 guys, you're going to look a lot more like Abby over time than you are like, so, you know, the average drawdown of the members of the SOCGEN CT index is in the 20s, right? The index is 14, okay? We are hoping to be a lot closer to 14 over time. And, and, so, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, but again, remember, we're also doing it in an ETF with, 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 with a fee structure that somebody who's running a model portfolio can, can, can digest, and, and, and feel like there's not a situation where, you know, I mean, one of the things about the 2000, the, that, that long winter is that, yes, the assets in the industry came down, but if every third year you have a really good year and then you give it back over the next two years, the way the fee structure works is people make a lot of money in the one year and then, and then you don't get it back, right? It's not like private equity where you get to the end and you see how much money you've actually made in hard dollars and distributed. You can have big years with big payouts followed by periods of poor performance, and nobody gives their money back. This is a problem across the overall hedge fund industry. That's one of the issues we were trying to address. It's the path dependency of it. And I applaud that. And having launched one of the first ETFs in this space, I mean, I get it. I think there's an appropriate place for it. Why do you think your ETFs failed in the U.S.? Well, so it wasn't just the U.S. We launched them in Canada when we first launched the Managed Futures ETF in Canada. And it was just timing. We launched them at, at you know a really challenging time. Uh, it was really hard to tell the CTA story. Um, you know, part of our business model at Auspice was, you know, again, different than the other CTAs in that we were retail and institutional, U.S. and Canada, uh, different delivery mechanisms for you know to really open up this to different investors. And the retail space, specifically in Canada, was was definitely not looking for. CTA product. So it was it was definitely a misstep. Uh, we learned a lot about that space. Um, our product has been live in the US, the COM ETF with direction um, and the predecessor um, 40 Act Mutual Fund has been live in the US since 2012. Just to be clear, it's five star rated. You know, that's that's 11 years. But that's a that's a long that's a long that's a commodity tracking ETF, right? That is a managed futures ETF that is long flat, the same engine we use in our managed futures index. It's just long flat, a basket of commodity only. Same term structure, same volatility based position sizing. It's managed futures at the end of the day. But the point is, even in that, the commodity side, in fact, even harder was the commodity side versus CTA. It was very out of favor. You couldn't tell a commodity story, uh, let alone a CTA story. I'm a commodity tilted CTA manager. I come from a commodity background. And so definitely with that tilt, it was very, very hard for us to tell our story. By the way, by the way, do you know, do you know I started Pinnacle? It was the first commodity fund of funds. I launched it back in, in the early 2000s. Uh, it's now kind of the global leader in allocating to fundamentally driven commodity Managers. Uh, look, so I, I've known the commodity space for 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 a very long time as well. You 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 talk about us as though we are uh, amateurs who cut corners to get to where we do, to where we are. It's not who we are. I, I think you're you're taking you're taking it personal when I'm pointing out 
with every strategy, as you've pointed out with ours, Andrew, you've pointed out the, the pitfalls or the negatives or whatever the negative points are. And every strategy has pluses and minuses. I'm a commodity tilted CTA who put out a single strategy, managed futures index and commodity index back over you know 13 years ago. And there's pluses and minuses. There's time when it underperforms and it outperforms. I recognize those pluses and minuses. I don't take them personally. It's not going to break my heart if somebody says, you know what, here's the problem with that single strategy is it doesn't have strategy diversification. You're too focused in commodities. You don't have equities. There's a million criticisms of those things. The reality is we've, we've got a long track record we're growing our business. I see the pluses and minuses. I'm not taking those things personal. And you shouldn't take these things personal. What I'm pointing out is what I see as some of the red flags in the replication space, specifically as to CTA. It's not, It's it, again, you've got a tailwind. And I think you're going to do great. As long as those managers and those benchmarks do great, you're going to do great. But I think you have to be careful with your words when you start talking about alpha, when you start talking about infinite capacity, when you start, you know, when the risk management debate comes up, because those are the bones of what being a CTA is. And, and you know, I think those things just need to be pointed out. All right. This isn't an attack on you. This is just you pointed out the negatives of mine. And I'm just saying, hey, by the way, this is a debate. Sure. Well, look. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean. To close, look. To close the circle. I think the way you talk about alpha to me seems. Uh, well, you said naive. You you said naive yeah, and old-fashioned. Okay. Yeah. It, it's it's. I, look. I think there's been a huge evolution of how people think about and talk about these things. Um, Cliff Asness has been a, has been a leader in it. I, I've you know look. I I personally think that 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 you know where people went with the alternative risk premium products didn't. Um, I think they were oversold for what they were. But I think when people when people use this term alpha. I think you have to think about what what are you comparing it to, you know. So so if you're saying if you're saying our definition of alpha is that when you have certain market dislocations you're going to go up, what's the cost of that in the rest of the time? Well, you can go out, you can go short the VIX, or you can do whatever. You could like I mean you can you can do a lot or buy the VIX, or you can you know you can short various things to get to get crisis alpha. It's always a trade off on this stuff and. You know, look, I, I think there's another issue on the retail side uh, as it relates to adoption, which, which Niels and I have talked about. No, is hold that hold I think on, let's just, let, let me just address that for one second, right? It's, it, this is a very elusive thing. What is alpha? So you can say I'm naive about it or old fashioned or whatever. I'm not that old, but, but I, get your, I get your point. But that's not, that's not the issue I have with it. Let's try to define perfectly what alpha is and that we per perform perfectly at this time. My issue is very simple. Your statement publicly is fee reduction is the purest form of alpha, and we think that's that's a misrepresentation. It's 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 a reference to the fact that if you have a if, if you're doing if you're doing an an institutional share class versus an A share class, the, the the cheaper share class will generate more. If if that wasn't clear to you, then I think it's clear to most people that I talk about that it's really an effort to try to 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 I basically agree, say it's it, it try, it try to get are for investors I, I 100% agree lower fees are very good for investors and, and you know what and, and, and you know what they're actually reasonably good for like look there's a sweet spot i believe right it's not just that they're good for investors if you want a business with longevity i think having appropriately priced products for the performance is is absolutely imperative so we agree on that it's your statement right because I, I just, I just, this is just a debate. It's two guys talking again. It's like Jerry and I saying, "Hey, you know what? I volatility adjust my positions when vols blow out in 
crude oil. And, and he's saying, don't do that. And I'm like, well, you know, we agree to disagree, right? So we're disagreeing on what alpha is. You're saying it's fee reduction. I'm saying it's not. No, no. Look, I'm saying I'm saying alpha is a complicated process. But but look, mathematically, you've got to decide what you're comparing yourself to. And 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 well, your, that's tw- the your Twitter that, handle your Twitter handle says in hedge funds fee reduction is the purest form of alpha. I mean, I, I didn't know who you were, but that's where my starting point was. <laughs> now, guys, let me interject a little bit here. This this has been good. I'm sure the audience will. Um, be surprised with this episode, but I think they're going to love it. Uh, now, I will just say, just as a little, there's a couple of things that I've just sort of written down, you, and I don't want to get into a big debate about it. I just want to point out that when we say that lower fees are good for investors, I don't think necessarily that's a true statement. I know plenty of funds that have high fees that have much better returns than a lot of the low fees products. So you can't make that statement either, in my view, saying lower fees are better for investors. Not always. So I just want to make that clear. They have to all equate, right? I don't know if it's the right word, but they have to justify each other. Yeah. The, the, the clause in the beginning is all other things being equal. No, no, I wasn't actually referring to, to your statements or anything. I was just, just that little point that was mentioned at the end by both of you tend to agree that lower fees are better for the investor. I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't agree with that. Uh, in isolation. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Give, yeah. give money to millennium, pay them 10 points. If you can, that's they, they, they're, they're worth, they're worth every penny. Yeah. So things like that, even some of the CTAs that I know pretty well, um, you know, anyways, that's one thing. The other thing I just want to say, because I think that's just something for me to be um, absolutely sure about something I picked up from you, Andrew. And that is when you say, Oh, you said, well, we are very closely correlated to the index. Again, from my point of view, I think correlation doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to replicate the performance because you could be correlated, but it doesn't mean you're generating the same performance because amplitude of returns is also important when you do correlation analysis, right? Because people often say to me, oh, I only need one trend follow because they're so correlated. And I'm thinking that's not true because they can have very different performance. Oh, completely. Correlation's a terrible, correlation's a terrible statistic, but I, I, you know, we, search, we, we search for a better one to have. We, have. we are highly correlated this year. We are underperforming. We are highly correlated in the years leading up to it, and we outperformed by a lot. That's, and that's, you know, so that's a challenge of replication is if you're, if you're, if you're outperforming are you doing your job? People are happy, but are you doing no, your no, job sure, in the sure. same no, way? No, no, sure, sure. I just want again just uh, yeah. for people to understand that. The other thing is, I actually I, I mentioned earlier we don't have time for for both of them. I just I actually did mention that there was a question that came in from from one of our listeners, and I think it's somewhat relevant. I don't know if it's more a statement than it is something we need to debate now. But but Oliver writes in, and I want to give credit to to him uh, for for taking time to write in. He says, "Why should it be more attractive for investors to invest?" in an index replication strategy instead of picking the trend fund that suits their specific portfolio goals and specific convictions best. I guess it's more difficult for investors to tell whether the SG trend or SG CTA index will move going forward, e.g. recent sharp tilt of the index, than to tell where a specific fund with specific characteristics will go. Example, if I invest in, say, Don Capital, I know approximately what their fund and methodology stands for. I don't know that as well for a mixed basket index. The index might move away from the from what I'm personally expecting from trend. However, it might reduce regret, fear of missing out, 
uh, though, when looking at other funds' short-term performance, so there is a behavioral benefit for some. And I thought I think that's that's an interesting. I mean, I think also that is a relevant point that because we talk about it as it's either or. I think it actually depends on what what you want from an allocation to this space. Absolutely. My, 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 whole, my whole point is anybody who's trying to do, I mean, I, look, we, we tried to build this as an index-like solution, index being defined as the overall space, which we meant by the SockGen CTA index or an equivalent index. Uh, that guy should invest with you, right? It is, it, is, it is really good for him. He wants to know how you think and what you're doing. He has very well-defined views in terms of where you fit in your portfolio and how you're supposed to put, or she, he should invest with Tim. Because Tim is basically articulating that that you know we think we are going to have this particular return profile over a period of time that is going to generate X Y Z at a specific periods of time. That's a guy who is neck deep in this space and what he wants and has the technical expertise to do that. If that guy says my goal is in ten years as part of my asset allocation to have something that is moving along with the index for good or bad, but if that's my goal. He should talk to us. Now, I'm going to wrap, I'm going to kind of wind this down, but it does leave us with, I think, potential for more debates because I, I, I sense you're becoming best friends through an hour of conversation, even though you it may not have sounded like this in the last hour. So I, I think that's where we're heading. Um, but anyways, there is a new entrance coming into this space um, who will be listening right now. And that is, of course, uh, Jerry. And and be, exactly, even, you know, so even though I think Tim has some stories about how he thought that what Tim was doing back then was completely nonsense, uh, he seems to be joining the ranks now. But more importantly, he's doing it, as far as I understand, with his full product. And that is a difference because often CTAs have in that ETF space carved out something which, let's be frank, is not their best product. So I can't imagine why why you want to do that for a flat fee of less than 1% and you have to share half of that. I can't imagine why you would do that. I And frankly, I mean, you've been very frank with each other. I can be very frank with you and say, I still don't really understand why you guys are giving what you're doing away because in my view, you're only competing on price. But that's for another debate. I'm setting it up as a little teaser. Um, okay. <laughs> Round two. You, 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 set, you set it up well. I mean, you know, this is this is part of the debate. And I, I love the way you describe that, Niles, in terms of, yeah, there was, there was a high criticism of, you know, why are you doing this and why are you charging this and why are you carving this out of your flagship product, you know, your subpar product, so to speak, or a single strategy. I don't think it's subpar. I think it's a single, it's a single strategy that makes up a multi-strat, but, but, you know, you're bang on. I'm, I'm curious of those same things with, uh, you know, with Jerry. So um, I think we might know, again, be full and, next and, and by time. the way, you know, I'd leave it, leave it with this, Andrew, you know, from my side, I, I think what you've done is, is super innovative there's a great tailwind. Um, you know, this is not that I think the thing should go away. That is not what I'm trying to get across here. 
I think there's room and I think there should be choice for investors. And I think that's fantastic, especially in this place. The most underserved space in the retail world, in my opinion. That's why I made the business decisions I made. You know, definitely had some missteps as a business. We were too early. You know, even just launching in Canada versus the U.S. was probably a big mistake. It is what it is. But here we are. And and all I'm trying to point out is, is certain things that I think we have to be careful in terms of how we describe things. And no more clearly has that been reminded to me more most recently when I converted our you know our longstanding funds to public funds in Canada, um, you know, publicly available, different regulations in terms of how you describe things. And and what I'm saying is that you know we've just got to be careful in terms of what we promise and and how we describe those things. And that's all I'm kind of pointing out. Um, you know, you're obviously a smart group of guys. Replication is a cool thing. You know, I just I chose a different path in the CTA space. I look, I I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And and look, as I would say, I there are a million different ways to go at this space. Um, and look, I think Corey's a great example. You know, I mean, hopefully Corey will listen to this. Corey is incredibly smart. He learned what we did, and he built a product that he believes is better. It uses part of what we do. It uses part of what you do, Tim basically in terms of constructing a rules-based approach. And then he added a, a, a fixed income and a leveraged component to it to try to serve a different part of the market. And, and you know, so back to Jerry coming into the space, I hope man comes into the space. I hope Alpha Simplex comes into the space. They, they, you know, they just bought by a company. They, there should be a lot of really good ETF products out there, and there haven't been. And I think what's what happened with our success last year is I think before last year, because of Tim, your experience and the experience of other people in the space and the fact that Wisdomtree had been around for a long time, First Trust had been around for a long time, they had gotten traction, is people assumed you couldn't do it. You, 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 you couldn't offer a, a, a credible asset allocation tool, a credible you know, trend-following product of credit in an ETF, and we've tried to break that mold. It's not easy. You know, we are dealing, we are 700 million out of a $7 trillion industry. We are one basis point out of the U.S. ETF world. And so, so you know, Niels, back to your, your thing is, our argument is that it shouldn't be one basis point. I don't know if it's 10 basis points, like in the mutual fund space, or 20 basis points in five years, or, or, or 50 basis points. There is plenty of room for everybody to have really meaningful assets and, and, and our view is that if we can solve an asset allocation problem, it gets us in front of guys who decide to just use us, not picking us versus other things, but they fill a bucket. And, and if we can do that well for them, then, you know, we'll have lower fees, but it'll be on larger AUMs over a long period of time. And it'll work or not, you know, three years, maybe, uh, you know, I'll be I'll be sending you guys resumes for jobs or something, and you know, there'll be uh, you know a, a, a big a big uh, resounding laughter from Calgary about uh, about. Well, not uh, at all. Again, you, you you truly shouldn't take it that way. This is a debate about how to go about something in a space that obviously is is you know where I've made my career and how I make my living. I put food on my table, so um, I'm say sensitive about it. But you know, don't take it personal. There's so many ways to slice the pie. 
look, I've been the bearer of so many a criticism in my career and even in what we've done at Auspice. I mean, we're a commodity tilted CTA going down the ETF path. I remember when I first launched a, a natural gas ETF. If you're such a good CTA, why are you launching this beta ETF? Well, I wanted to learn about ETFs and indexing. So I've, I've taken lots of criticism and you know there's room for it and uh, so be it um, if you want if you want to enjoy if you want to enjoy widespread hatred launch a replication business <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent well, a decade well, a decade and a half almost 12 years getting the door slammed in my face again and again it's too simple it can't work it's not alpha and and for whatever reason i am you know i i'm still standing but barely so okay Let's let's leave it on that note. This this really was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think everyone listening to this uh, enjoyed it because at the end of the day, I mean, as as I sometimes say in my intro, I mean, this is the place where we come to voice our differences on the one thing that we all love. And so I think we've we've lived up to that um, statement today, and we will do this again, I have no doubt. And maybe there will be three, four, five of us. Next time you'll have Jerry, and then you, you both can gang exactly. up on me. So there will be, be plenty of ways to, uh, <laughs> to, to keep this going. Now, uh, let me just say that if you enjoy this uh, type of, of episode, why don't you just let me know, and maybe we can do more of these. But in any event, make sure you rate and review the podcast um, so that more people can find debates like this. I mean, these are some of the smartest people you're going to come across in this industry. So why not uh, share that with more people? Next week, I'm going to be joined by another very clever person from this industry, namely Nick Baltus from Goldman Sachs. So make sure you send in your questions for that episode, info at toptradersonplot.com. That is where you should send them. From Andrew, Tim, and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.